This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan, a professor of political science at St. Francis Xavier University in Canada. I am talking today with Dr. Aurelian Krayutsu, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Indiana University at Bloomington. Known as Relu among his friends and family, he's a truly Renaissance man of letters, one who finds wonder and solace among the thousands of books he has accumulated over time, some of them in Romania, the country of his birth, and others in the United States, where he emigrated as a student in the 1990s and obtained a PhD degree at Princeton University in year 1999. But Aurelian Kriutsu is also a man of the world, having taught at universities and having participated at conferences in the United States, France, Spain, Hungary, and Romania, among others. Professor Kriutsu is world-renowned for his work in political philosophy with publications which include books like why Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals, which will be published uh, uh, with Cambridge University Press this year. A Virtue for Courageous Minds, Moderation in French Political Thought, 1748-1830, published with Princeton University Press in 2012. Liberalism under Siege, the Political Thought of the French Doctrinaires, published with Lexington Books, uh, at Roman and Littlefield in 2003, America through European eyes, English and French reflections on the new world from the 18th century to the present, published with uh, Pennsylvania State University Press in 2009, and conversations with Tocqueville, the global democratic revolution in the 21st century, published in 2009. He's also published books in French and Romanian and has edited new editions of the original writings of great thinkers such as Tocqueville, Jacques Necker, uh, François Guizot, uh, Madame de Stel, all of which received rave reviews from various journals. Kayutsu's passion for Tocqueville inspired the establishment of a center for the study of his works at Indiana University in Bloomington. Relu is also connected with an, adv- an avid supporter of Romanian studies at his university, which organizes an annual conference, uh, conference where upon, once upon a time I delivered the keynote address. But above all, Relu is committed to moderation, And we are here today to talk about his book, Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in the Age of Extremes, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2017. Welcome to the New Books Network, Professor Aurelian Creuzo. 
thank you for this generous and kind of long introduction. And I hope that uh, uh, our listeners won't be too, uh, let's say, pushed back by that. Thank you for accepting this interview. Before we turn to moderation and uh, what it means for the political game in your country and uh, other countries, let me first ask another question. Why did you choose a university in the United States and not one in France to pursue your doctoral work? Sometimes the choices that we make are unconscious or do not have a rational plan. And uh, in this case, uh, in my case, uh, that is, um, I didn't have a rational idea of what I would have liked to be uh, 30 years ago, but I, I saw myself at the time in early 90s because I was a Francophone and a Francophile, um, as I said, I saw myself continuing my studies in France, and I, I did study in France in 1990-91, and then I returned to Romania for two years, and then I got a Fulbright Fellowship to come to study in the United States at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And it is from one step to another that I ended up doing my doctoral work at Princeton, of course, I made a conscious choice to try my luck in the United States, and I'm glad I did then. But it wasn't, uh, let's say, a full-fledged plan when I came here. You wrote extensively on Tocqueville. And um, at Indiana, at Bloomington, you also had a center on studies on Tocqueville. How did your work on Tocqueville serve as a foundation for your work on moderation? Are they related in any way? So let me let me start answering your, your question by saying that um, for me, the encounter with Tocqueville's works and ideas was a decisive moment in my intellectual development. I read his Democracy in America with the passion of a 25-year-old person who was seeking at the time some answers to the problems that we were encountering trying to build democratic institutions on the ruins of communism in Romania. And reading Democracy in America was a, uh, let's say, monumental uh, reading for me in the sense that it not necessarily provided answers, but showed me some ways of looking for those answers. And one of the ideas that impressed me back then was Tocqueville's political moderation. Tocqueville defined himself in his correspondence as being placed between the future and the past. That is, he, he saw himself as belonging neither to the aristocratic past nor to the you know, radical future of tomorrow. And he f sought to find the balance between the attachment to the traditions of old France and the values and norms of the new France. And it is this balance that he sought to achieve in his own works that impressed me then and continues to impress me today. So Tocqueville says at some point in the notes for Democracy in America that there is somewhere the idea of a middle that expresses best the message that he wanted to convey in writing Democracy in America. And that idea has always stayed with me and had a very powerful influence on me. Now, Tocqueville himself, was not always a moderate person. Um, I've been fascinated uh, by reading uh, some of his biographies. He was uh, a difficult person, actually, and he um, he had little um, 
uh, let's say, tolerance for uh, mediocrities. And he couldn't remember people's faces. So he was not a good politician, but he had the ambition of being a great politician. Um, so, you know, I've always been surprised by the fact that someone who was not necessarily a moderate person in his own life could write such a great book, which is, uh, a, I would say, uh, a testimony to the enduring value of political moderation. Now, the center that I have at uh, Indiana, it's a small program, as a matter of fact, um, is not only dedicated to the study of Tocqueville works, but it's associated with the Ostrom workshop in political theory and public policy, policy analysis. And uh, I have to say that um, Tocqueville was uh, a figure that inspired the works of Eleanor Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom. Eleanor Ostrom was one of my colleagues. She passed away in 2012, but in 2009 she won the Nobel Prize for Economics. So I was very privileged to, to get to know both Lynn and Vincent Ostrom. And I'm delighted that most of our events are taking place in the Tocqueville room at the Ostrom workshop, where there is a major portrait of Tocqueville on, on the western wall of the uh, room. So uh, Tocqueville talks about the middle point, but what do you mean by moderation? Is is the middle point the moderation or how do you define it? And as uh, as somebody who's working in uh, in uh, comparative politics, I would be also, also interested to hear from you whether moderation is different from other virtues like prudence, inactivity, mediocrity sometimes, you know, or resignation in some contexts. How do you apply this con- this uh, label? This question requires a full-fledged book, so I'm going to try to be short. <laughs> Um, and to the point. So first of all, um, I would like to uh, make a a small amendment here. I like to talk about moderation in the plural. That's why the title of my 2017 book is Faces of Moderation, which is to say that moderation has several faces. And this is perhaps a small detail to some, but it's an important one to me because as I see it, moderation has an ethical component. It's a virtue that contributes to restraining our passions, avoiding the extremes, tempering our zeal, and so forth. And this idea appears in Aristotle, for example, in the Nicomachean Ethics, but it also appears in other works in uh, theology. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologiae, has a, 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 a long chapter dedicated to temperance. To respond to your question, there is a link between moderation and temperance. And moderation as as a way of restraining the passions also appears in others' works, Plato's works, for example. Uh, But there is, in addition to the ethical component of moderation, a constitutional slash institutional aspect to moderation. And this is illustrated by the fact that we have, let's say, two chambers in parliaments or bicameralism. We have federalism in the United States, Canada, and other countries. We have what the uh, um, Ostrom School of uh, Public uh, Policy calls polycentricity. Um, and there are other mechanisms, subsidiarity and so forth, separation of powers, balance of powers. All of these mechanisms and institutional devices constitute what I would like to think of as um, constitutional phases of moderation. And then there is a style associated with moderation, a style that, uh, let's say, is um, linked to uh, modesty, to humility, to civility. Um, And all of this uh, 
I think contributes to a third phase of moderation, which is this, you know, moderation as a start. So you have moderation as an ethical virtue, moderation as a set of institutional constitutional devices, and then there is um, moderation as a style. So when we speak about moderation, we need to, to take into account all of these compo components together. And um, it's not always obvious that people are aware of the, uh, let's say, multifarious nature of this virtue. One other thing deserves to be said in this context, which is, as you suggested in your question, to understand moderation is not enough to study it individually as a separate virtue. Moderation belongs as I see it. I'm a historian of political thought, after all. Um, moderation belongs to a semantic field, so it's linked to uh, let's say, um, synonyms such as prudence, temperance, um, modesty, humility, if you wish. But also it's linked to its antonyms, fanaticism, extremism, radicalism, zealotry, uh, sectarianism, and, and uh, tribalism. So to understand what moderates stand for, you also need to look at what they fight against. And what they fight against are the fanatics, the zealots, the ones, the, the sectarian ones, the, those who promote various forms of tribalism. And you need to look at also uh, at the synonyms of moderation. So prudence, for example, is a major, let's say, related concept of moderation. And that's why, again, to study moderation, you would need, as, as it becomes clear, I think, to our listeners, you need a research team. Each of us could study one or two virtues or you know, phenomena here but you can't study all of them on your own. And speaking for myself, I've been trying to, to con concept conceptualize moderation as an archipelago. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, we, we do have a, a number of thinkers that we know who they are, such as uh, Aristotle, Cicero, Burke in the 18th century, Tocqueville that you mentioned, but we don't know, or Montesquieu in, at the beginning of the 18th century, but, but we don't know what connects their ideas. So they are usually labeled as moderates or representatives of moderation. Aristotle, Tocqueville, Montesquieu. But what connects them, it's unclear. So my work as a historian of political thought has been until now to connect those islands under the water. That's why I speak of moderation as an archipelago. There are lots of islands that are underwater and they are connected subterraneously and, and mysteriously somehow, but we don't see those connections above the water. So the task of historians of political thought is to, to bring to light this archipelago of moderation. And this is what I've done in the, in the books that you mentioned at the outset. Indeed, in the phases of moderation, actually, you are looking closely at uh, five thinkers. Yeah? Uh, Raymond Aron, Isaiah Berlin, Norben Norberto Bobbio, Michael Oxshott, and uh, Adam Michnik. Uh, one Italian, one... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, one French, you want, yeah. So, uh, was was your ambition to to show that moderation crosses borders, and um, you have thinkers in this tradition in Western Europe, but also in Eastern Europe, where you know um, 
the the political regimes have not been moderate by any standards during the 20th century or what was the criteria for for selecting these these thinkers and not others good good question i think there were several criteria but the the most important one is that these are authors i admire and um, authors i I read with great pleasure. Every time I open a book by uh, Raymond Daron, uh, I I can't say exactly what attracts me there, but it's not only the style, it's also the quality of the ideas, the tone, everything. The same goes for Isaiah Berlin, whom I discovered rather early on in a book of conversations with Ramin Jahanbeglu from the late 80s, and uh, Berlin always fascinated me as well. But what I wanted to show selecting these authors is that um, moderation can be found not only in the middle, but also on the left side of the political spectrum, but and on the right side of the political spectrum. Um, on the left side of the political spectrum, moderation is usually ignored or undervalued. Uh, it is assumed, I think wrongly so, that if you're on the left, you have to be a radical. And I wanted to show by including Norberto Bobbio, who was a prominent left-wing intellectual from, from Italy, from the second half of the 20th century, that it's, it is possible to be a moderate and a left-of-the-center liberal. Bobbio himself saw himself as a moderate, though he always had an, a passion for what he called then socialism in Italy. Liberal socialism, he called it. Now, th this labels make or don't make much difference today, but it did make then. And the fact that he always emphasized constitutionalism and moderation to his friends on the left and engaged with them in a dialogue, even with the communists, was very important to me when I was writing this book. So it was his propensity to dialogue with people from the extreme left and from the right that influenced my decision to include him. Uh, on the right, I have Michael Oakeshott in the book. Oakeshott defined himself as a conservative, but his conservatism was unique in the sense that for him, conservative themes do not necessarily have to include religion on the political level. Um, Michael Oakeshott read a lot into religious sources, as we know by reading his uh, journal, but he thought that the founding father of conservatism should have been David Hume rather than Edmund Burke, as it is commonly argued, though Burke himself was a Whig and not necessarily a Tory. But the idea of presenting David Hume as a founding father of conservatism, the lost founder of conservatism, as Oakeshott says, uh, struck me as ingenious. And I, I've always been fascinated by Oakeshott's uh, essays. For example, his critique of rationalism in politics, very important but also his distinction between two types of politics, the politics of faith on the one hand and the politics of skepticism on the other. He says that these are the two poles between which modern politics has been moving for the last, I don't know how many centuries, and uh, we need a little bit of both. So Oakeshott showed that you can be a moderate on the right um, by combining a politics of faith with the politics of skepticism. Now, the, the author that um, are in the middle would be um, Raymond Aron and Isaiah Berlin. Um, Berlin was not politically engaged. He was a professor uh, at Oxford, a prominent public intellectual in Britain, um, but he saw himself as a moderate of sorts. 
he wrote essays in the history of political thought. He's famous for the distinction between positive liberty, liberty to do something, and negative liberty, liberty from interference. But the author that, that I, I was really um, fascinated by was Raymond Aron. Uh, Raymond Aron died in 1983, he was born in 1905. He coincides a little bit with, with Berlin, whose dates are 1909-1997. But um, uh, they had different trajectories, and Aron was in France, uh, one of the few people who had read Marx, for example, without being a Marxist. And he had this dialogue with the left, accusing them of having kind of sold their soul to become members of a tribe. And his uh, dialogue or lack of dialogue with Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, in this regard is interesting because uh, Aron was a man of dialogue, whereas Sartre was not. And uh, Aron always had a hand out to, to Sartre, and they uh, were friends in the, in the youth. They, all, they both went to Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris, and then they reconciled very late in 1979, before, um, a year before Sartre's death. So Aron's, again, um, uh, civil uh, tone, but also his propensity to dialogue, his uh, dissection of what he called uh, secular religions, um, like Marxism, for example, um, uh, all those uh, were topics that interest me. And then there is Ada Miknik, is the only one in alive from the authors I wrote about. He was born in 1946. Miknik was a prominent member of the resistance to communism in Poland. Um, he played a role in the uh, formation uh, of the Committee for the Defense of Workers in uh, the mid-1970s, and then uh, he was uh, an inspiration for the Solidarity Movement as well, though he was not necessarily a leader of that movement, Lech Wałęsa was. So um, these thinkers showed to me that uh, moderation can be not only a civil means of promoting an agenda, a decent agenda, but also an effective means for promoting uh, a, a political agenda. Because Michnik, for example, with with his concept of new evolutionism, and by embracing a related concept of self-limiting revolution, was able to crystallize a, an opposition to communism in, in Poland in the 70s and 80s. That was actually effective in bringing down the system through the roundtable movements in the late 1980s in 1989. So this thinker showed that moderation can also be an effective tool in fighting for a decent and free society. It's not just a word, a nice ideal that very little um, is very uh, rarely successfully practiced, can bring us very little. On the contrary, it can bring us a lot. Listening to you, I wonder whether you would consider Mahatma Gandhi a moderate thinker also, or Nelson Mandela for that matter, you know? Um, And uh, because both of them, to a certain degree, have uh, commonalities uh, in their political trajectories with Adam Michnik. And uh, in the case of... um, 
Nelson Mandela moderation led to his long time imprisonment, actually. Uh, he was a moderate uh, um, in the African National Congress in the sense that he opposed uh, all the um, violent armed um, resistance to apartheid uh, um, proposed by Mangosutu Butelezi or um, um, his other colleagues. Uh, is moderation in other in other the words is moderation something that you discern um, in the case of of uh, other countries um, um, in in other regions of the world? This, this is a good question, and I, I I tend to agree with you that uh, both Gandhi and Mandela could be brought into this you know camp of moderates. Unfortunately, I know relatively little about Gandhi, not more than any ordinary reader knows. So I prefer not to speculate on, on that. I've read a little bit of, of his autobiography, which is impressive. So I think that there is, let's say, a grain of moderation right right there. Not, you know, the, the civil uh, non-resistance to power, uh, civil disobedience, all of these concepts do have a certain resonance with moderation. Um, but one thing that I, I, I always say when I'm asked this question is that one of the greatest advantages of moderation it, it, is that it doesn't have borders. There are, um, let's say, faces of moderation in Confucian philosophy. So I'm, I'm not an expert here. Again, I prefer to speak on issues that I'm most knowledgeable about. But I've studied a little bit of uh, neo old Confucian texts and um, and uh, post-Confucian text and um, uh, moderation is there. The doctrine of the mean is there, uh, and Confucius Analects I think is a book about moderation. There's no doubt about that. So there's there's moderation in the in the Confucian tradition. There's moderation in the Islamic tradition. Um, there's a moderation in the Christian tradition and in other religious traditions. Jewish, of course. Um, so that's a great advantage of moderation that it, it goes beyond borders uh, and it's it has an i wouldn't say necessarily universal appeal but it has an appeal that transcends borders going back to your uh, uh, faces of moderation the the book of all the authors you covered there which one is the closest to your heart uh, I, raymond I, daron <laughs> i think i already revealed my answer it is raymond daron um, because um, uh, in in our own, you have this metaphor of the uh, spec, spectator who is engaged, uh, the committed observer, uh, uh, someone who, when uh, commenting on political and social issues, uh, must have a certain attitude, and and that attitude uh, our own illustrated perfectly, which is you have to make to do your homework, you have to make an effort to to inform yourself before expressing a view on any position. Aaron was always informed. I don't know how, because he didn't have the internet at his disposal then. But he always spoke, uh, uh, you know, as the French say, en connaissance de cause, right? Knowing what he was talking about. Um, and today, in our uh, inflationary age uh, of podcasts, articles, online magazines or so, there's so much being written and, and spoken that you know, illustrates perhaps ignorance rather than knowledge. And Aaron is the opposite, that whenever you, you read something that he wrote 60 years ago, 
you you have always this question in mind how come he never said stupid things you know because you know in the 50s 60s there were lots of political events that uh, occurred during that time so it was the, the, this attitude of uh, let's say engaged spectatorship that that influenced me and uh, his civility as well um, anyone can watch him on youtube there are recordings with our own debates and uh, it's amazing to see someone disagreeing with others so civilly and so forcefully so it's on the one hand strong disagreement on the level of ideas on the other hand perfect civility on the level of uh, interpersonal relations and uh, he was liked uh, by many disliked for his you know opposition to communism in france for example uh, but respected and that example of, of intellectual is is almost gone today Mm-hmm. Um this um, um example is uh, very poignant uh, for uh, the country where you are working uh, the United States yeah with uh, uh with the election of Donald Trump as president and everything that uh, followed uh, afterwards yeah so can you give some examples of how moderation would help uh the the political game and the people in the United States to, to regain the center or to, to regain this civility of dialogue that you are talking about? The, the way in which you, you framed and phrased the question uh, is um, it's very tempting because uh, uh, one, one could uh, imagine for a moment that one has a, a magical solution to that. I don't. But I, I prefer to answer to your question, starting from the grassroots level. So I think that it starts with us. Um, it starts with us in the sense that um, wherever we happen to be in our workplace, in our families, with our friends, uh, we need to practice moderation. For example, we need to be civil with those who disagree with us. And actually, we need to cultivate disagreement, but civil disagreement in the sense that we should avoid being trapped or living in bubbles, in echo chambers. In other words, we should avoid living only with those who share our our ideas. Disagreement is disagreeable, (laughs) to use a funny word here, Uh, but it is healthy. This is a lesson that John Stuart Mill taught us on liberty in the 19th century. But that's a lesson that we have yet to learn. I see this in my own department at Indiana University in Bloomington, where we have sometimes difficulties in disagreeing civilly with each other. We either shout, and I speak now generally, uh, or close the door, or just prefer not to engage. So we need to start at that level, cultivating civil, the art of civil disagreement. I teach a class actually this semester, one of my favorite classes on um, polarization and partisanship. And um, this is exactly what I want to to suggest to my students, that it starts with us. And we start the class by uh, taking a bubble quiz. It's a set of, uh, I think, 25 questions designed by a social scientist, controversial himself, Charles Murray. It's called uh, the bubble quiz. And it asks a series of questions uh, meant to uh, uh, evaluate how thick or thin the bubble in which you live is. And my my bubble is kind of thick. 
because you know I'm a professor, I live in a college town. I, you know, my contemporaries are Aristotle and Tocqueville um, most of the time, so I don't interact with people uh, too much, and that's opinion. But I'm aware of that at least. But most people or others are not, and um, I think. How we, about your we, students? Uh, my students got got better scores than me, but I'm also for. I, well, I wasn't born here, so I have kind of kind of uh, uh, extenuating circumstances here. But I scored I scored a very a thin, uh, uh, very thick bubble, excuse me, uh, which is not good. <laughs> uh, the um, uh, so this is the answer to your question. It starts with us cultivating the art of civil disagreement, talking to people who do not share our views going a little bit of, uh, outside of our comfort zone. And there are many organizations that have started doing that. I don't know about Canada and other countries or Europe, but in the United States there is a movement, grassroots movement, bottom-up, that organize, um, seek to organize this kind of um, reunions or workshops, meetings, where people from one side meet with, the, with others, sit down, talk about rather difficult issues from abortions to gun legislation, gun control legislation and uh, try to come up with uh, with concrete solutions when people do that they uh, they uh, start listening they learn to listen and they learn they learn the art of empathy as well because you know you have people you know with their real problems and views and you know some people have fanatic views but most people are not fanatics and i think that rediscovering this this is very important for all of us so that's the answer starts from so, bottom so up so your your point is that uh, com uh, honest communication uh, uh, leads us to moderation in our daily life and uh, helps us to bridge our differences, so that we uh, we treat the other um, with respect, even when uh, they are completely um, you know parallel in uh, in ideas with us. Hmm? Easier easier said than done, but yes, in a, in principle. Um, uh, it's um, do not be afraid of disagreement. Uh, do not be uh, uh, a prisoner of your bubble. Uh, if you, if you, for example, if you are a Democrat, read the Wall Street Journal. For God's sake, it's a, it's a respectable journal. Don't limit yourself to New York Times. If you are a conservative, uh, there's nothing to lose by reading the New York Times. You don't you don't have to like it, but you know you read that. Uh, uh, again, if you're on the left, you, you, you should read The Economist because it is, in my view, the best publication available at this time. Uh, it's not a pro-market uh, vehicle for neoliberalism. Um, if you are on the right, again, uh, you should uh, listen to MSNBC uh, news because, you know, what they say there sometimes is right as well. So be, be courageous. Uh, don't don't become prisoner of your tribe. I agree. I agree completely with this. Uh, uh, but I wonder uh, what we, the people, are supposed to do when we are dealing with politicians like uh, Viktor Orban or Jaroslav Kaczynski or even Donald Trump, um, people who are not engaged in communication. How how do we bridge the gap there? There are shades of gray. Fifty Shades of Grey, some people say. I think there are less, but these are the shades of grey. Um, Kaczynski is one shade, uh, Orban is another one, Erdogan is another one. Um, look, my view is, is a simple one. These people 
Orban in particular and Erdogan. Uh, they believe that liberal democracy is um, uh, a thing of the past, a creature of the past. We need to invent new things. And I think we need to oppose this this claim uh, vigorously. Um, we need to, to defend the virtues. First of all, be aware of the virtues of liberal democracy, which include rule of law, number one, open contestation for power, open debates, free speech, um, and fairness, transparency. So we need to defend these things. And we cannot simply um, uh, say liberalism has failed or liberal democracy has failed just because our party has lost or, or you know, some people are defending crazy things elsewhere. Uh, would you like to live in a country where there is no rule of law? Would you like to live in a country where you don't have freedom of speech? No. And it's only liberal democracy that guarantees that. It doesn't give you answers to the question, what is the meaning of life? But that's not the question that politics should answer. So this brings me back to, to a larger issue here that I'm, I'm concerned with. Some people are looking in politics for answers to questions that cannot be answered by politics. Those answers can be answered by their religion, by other spiritual traditions, but to ask politics to give answers to those questions is is wrong and it's impossible. So uh, we've seen this in the 1930s. Some Romanian intellectuals, for example, were, were looking to restore a certain sense of unity by in endorsing right-wing movements. And that was wrong then and it is wrong now. So liberal democracy has not failed, but it's not perfect either. So we should not look for illiberal democracy because that's not the answer. You get Vladimir Putin, you get all of that despicable regime that has created the tragedy in Europe, which is going on as we speak. So that's not the answer. It has to be defended. But what we need to talk about is how to make the institutions of liberal democracy work better. And here, you know, there's a lot to talk about and we shouldn't uh, gloss uh, over the uh, problems that we're facing today in, in higher education, um, in society at large and so forth. And I have here in mind, of course, the phenomenon of cancel culture. If you if you do not agree with someone, you call for someone to be canceled just because I've, I feel offended. Well, don't be a snowflake. Uh, we don't need that. We need a vigorous and civil co uh, conversation here. And uh, um, that, that is a problem that, that we have today in our liberal democracies, one of the problems. But I want to say that castle culture is a phenomenon on both the left and the right. It's not only the left. Uh, can we um, uh, also uh, uh, get uh, uh, um, brief, uh, brief uh, description from you of your latest book that will be published uh, this year with Cambridge University Press? Excellent question, because I want to talk about this book, which has taken me three years to write. Fortunately, we had the pandemic and I stayed home most of the time and I had to write it. But it, it, it was difficult because I tried to put in a trade book, which is a book for a larger audience, the ideas that we've been talking about. And uh, I asked myself, if I weren't an academic and I would read the book, what would I like to, to read in this book? So I imagined a dialogue. I imagined a dialogue between me, not necessarily a wiser person, but let's say a more experienced person, talking to two imagined, imaginary 
uh, young radicals, one from the left, one from the right. When I started writing the book, Why Mod Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals, I thought that I would talk to one person only. But in the course of writing the book, it occurred to me that I was missing a second interlocutor, so I added someone from the right. So now I have Lauren from the left, Lauren with L from the left, and Rob from the right, R for right. And they uh, have a, a conversation among themselves as well. So the book is punctuated. It's a kind of dynamic book. It starts with a dialogue amongst ourselves, imaginary, of course, and then a set of letters, and then I bring them their voices back. They s usually say, no, no, we don't need moderation for this reason, for that reason. And I end the book with, uh, with a set of um, uh, rules for radical moderates. The book has several parts. Um, we talk at the beginning about the world in which we live today, what we've been talking earlier. And then in the second part, uh, I realized they know nothing about moderation. So I tell them what kind of virtue is moderation. I do a little bit of historical foray there. I, I talk about moderation in America, but I also talk about moderation as an alternative to ideology and uh, opposition to fanaticism. And then I take up the question that I always get when I make presentations on moderation. What is the political vision? behind moderation. And there I talk about a number of things that um, uh, I, I kind of uh, am obsessed with. One is um, that we we don't need any litmus test in politics, no forms of manichaeism, black or white. Uh, we need compromise. Um, I talk about the need for defending pluralism of ideas, of interests. Uh, I talk about dialogue and I talk about uh, a metaphor that, that is very close to my my vision of moderation, and that is balance, and related to that, the metaphor of trimming. Trimming is to trim the sails of the ship to keep the ship on an even keel, and uh, that is, I think, uh, uh, in essence, the image of, uh, of moderation. Uh, by the way, the image of uh, balance appears on the cover of my previous book, which is uh, Faces of Moderation, which uh, has a funambulist tightrope walker on the front cover. That's a metaphor of the moderates. They are on the tightrope all the time, exposed to the power of the winds. And then I talk in the, at the end of the forthcoming book about the style of moderation, and then who needs moderation today before I offer rules for radical moderates. So it's a dynamic book, a book that um, um, uh, I hope is not self-righteous, that, that's something that I wanted to avoid at all costs. It's a book in, which starts, by the way, with a trigger warning. I, I write against trigger warnings, but I put a caveat lector, a trigger warning at the beginning of this book, in which uh, I say, if you think you already hold moderate views, that's all good. You may still want to read the book, but uh, if you are not a moderate, this book is especially for you. So that's the book. This this collection of um, uh, letters, uh, which I didn't read yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to read, reminds me reminds me actually of another book of letters or a, a, another book of of a dialogue, yeah, where the main protagonist was uh, Mihai Shora your uh, mentor when you were a student in Romania in your youth. Could you, could you tell our list, uh, listeners uh, something about Mihai Shora? Well, uh, Mihai Shora uh, was the person who introduced me to the world of ideas. 
when I went to study uh, for college in Bucharest in 1984. He is a philosopher. He's still alive, born in 1916. That makes him 106 years old. He um, returned to Romania in 1948, educated in Romania, studied in France, lived there for 10 years, um, and then uh, led a private life as, uh, as a philosopher, as, as an editor and a philosopher. He never taught. And after the fall of communism, he was the first uh, the minister of education, the first post-communist re- uh, government for six months, and then uh, he returned to private life. Um, Shora's uh, second book, the first book was published in 1947. Uh, the second book was uh, entitled uh, The Salt of the Earth. The third one, uh, To Be, To Have, uh, To Be, To Have, and To Do. Uh, um, was um, also conceived as a dialogue. It's a dialogue between uh, someone who knows a little bit more and, and a younger friend. So there are two or three uh, three voices there and a devoted friend as well in the third book. So um, I think all of these voices um, uh, are, are voices of the author, of course, and um, uh, the need for, for controversy, for dialogue, I think, uh, is central to uh, his conception of philosophy. Strangely, when I was writing this book, I had no idea I would, uh, I would f- uh, follow in, in the footsteps of someone who wrote the book as a form of dialogue. Inner Dialogue is the title of his first book. But in this case, I, I really think that having a dialogue is an expression of moderation because um, you don't have the answers to all of these questions. You, it, I think it's very important to know how to ask good questions. But uh, as for um, uh, giving good answers uh, to all of these questions, good luck. Any human being uh, can try, but not every, not, it's impossible uh, to succeed. Okay. Well, your your answers were excellent in this interview. Our guest today at the New Books Network was uh, Dr. Aurelian Kriutsu, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Indiana University at Bloomington, and the author of Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in the, uh, in the Age of Extremes, a book published with the uh, University of Pennsylvania Press in 2016. 17, actually. Thank you, and hope we'll talk again soon. Goodbye, Relo. Thank you for having me.